The Slate Political Gab Fest is sponsored by GoToMeeting with HD Faces. Now your team can meet face-to-face while online from anywhere, even from an iPad. Try GoToMeeting free for 30 days. Visit GoToMeeting.com and use the promo code GABFEST. And by the University of California. For almost 150 years, the University of California has educated the brightest minds and helped California become a beacon of innovation. UC is the future made bold. Hello and welcome to the Slate Political Gab Fest for June 27th, 2014, the Get Your Hands Off My Cell Phone Officer edition. I'm David Plotz, the editor of Slate. I'm in New York. Today, the Supreme Court rules in just about every case you can imagine, including over cell phone privacy, presidential appointments, television, abortion clinics, you name it, they ruled. Then, black Democrats saved an old white Republican senator from Mississippi. Is that a good thing? Bad thing? And we'll also talk about whether Rand Paul is a liberal. We're scattered to the winds this week. Slate's chief political correspondent, John Dickerson, is guarding GabFest Gold Base in Washington, D.C. Hello, John. Hi, David. And Emily Bazelon, Slate's senior editor, protects the vulnerable left flank of New Haven. Hello, Emily. <laughs> Hello. I'm in New York, which is, which is cool, although it's, it's sad for us to be not together. All right. It's Supreme Court decision time. Several weeks of the year when the justices actually work. This week, the court ruled in something like a billion different cases. They, again, upheld the right of the EPA to do some form of greenhouse gas regulation. They sided with TV networks against the, the tech startup area around uh, TV signals and whether, what form you can intercept them. They abolished buffer zones around abortion clinics in Massachusetts. And in the two cases that we're really going to focus on, they... They upheld the the nominal power of the president to make recess appointments, but got rid of his actual power to do it, apparently. Well, Emily will explain whether that's the case. And then secondly, they unanimously held that cops can't search your cell phone when they arrest you unless they have a warrant to do so. So, Emily, um, pick a case. March us forward. Let's talk about cell phones and then let's talk about presidential appointments. Cell phones, I think, are this is one of the more accessible cases the court has had for a while because everyone has a cell phone. And partly for that reason, the court unanimously said that the police have to get a warrant before they can look at every single piece of data you have stored on your cell phone when they arrest you. And this is a break from their previous cases on the Fourth Amendment and what constitutes an unreasonable search and seizure. Because in earlier times, when you got arrested, the cops could look without a warrant at everything that was on your person, basically in your pockets. That meant your billfold, your wallet, your personal diary. And so the government had argued that your cell phone was just an extension of all that stuff. And that the police, for the protection of themselves and for reasons of worrying about destruction of evidence, to just be able automatically, once they arrest you, to go through the contents of your phone. But the justices showed that they understand cell phone technology well enough to get that the immense storage capacity of a cell phone means that a cell phone is not like your personal diary or your wallet or even everything together. And they said, you know what, officer, it's not that hard to get a warrant these days. You can go get a warrant before you um, invade people's privacy in that way. So this is like digital era understanding of privacy and how that should change the balance between people's individual rights and the power of the government, um, its law enforcement powers. So, Emily, 
Do you think the justices came to this decision, which they came to unanimously, which is surprising, because they are themselves cell phone users? How much do you think the personal is the judicial in this case? Well, Linda Greenhouse wrote a piece for The New York Times that absolutely makes that argument. And she's such an amazing court watcher that I I take that to heart. And I do feel like there's this way in which this opinion is full of attempts to make it clear that the justices get cell phones. I mean, this is not such an amazing uh, accomplishment that we should all hail, right? I mean, we're talking about like 15-year-old technology. However, at oral argument, Justice Breyer said he wasn't really sure what kind of phone he had because he couldn't crack the password. So, you know, if that's the the standard, then they exceeded it. And the the part of this opinion that I think is not just like the justices looking out for themselves is that I can't imagine they go around worrying about getting arrested. However, there are 12 million people who get arrested in the United States every year. Most of them never get convicted of a crime or plead guilty. And so there is a way in which this was a tremendous incursion on people's personal privacy. And and the court is worried about that and recognized that this was going to have some cost to preventing crime and solving crimes and said basically, well, you know, privacy comes at a cost. Emily, let me ask you this. Justice Scalia, when he talks about the way he looks at the Constitution and the, what the Supreme Court should do has made the case that, you know, the Supreme Court shouldn't have to necessarily keep up with every latest development in technology, that they're, that if it's doing that, it's doing the wrong thing. So is there a way in which um, this can be can – be the, the reason this is a 9-0 is that there's something here that, yes, you have to know at a very basic level how a cell phone what it is, but that this doesn't require a super technological understanding of the device itself, that this really is just sort of basic rights and protections that are a part of our American system, more than a case about technology. But John, actually, I was just thinking about this, and and can I pose you guys the counterfactual, which was, imagine if they hadn't, if this case or version of this case had come to them 10 years ago, where you had a flip phone that had, that could store lots of numbers and maybe it could take some crude photos, but it didn't have all this web searching capability. I bet they reach a different decision, and that it's the. F- but that and is, and then and then and then once they've allowed that in, then the next phone. Let's like then they get the phone which has you know better photos and also has sort of t- locational tracking data. Is that now admissible? Like and your calendar. Like then that's admissible. And then suddenly you've crept yourself to a situation where your all your iPhone is admitted. I think it's it's a good fortune for for civil liberties that they didn't get a case like this until the technology had jumped so far ahead. But that's about the timing of technology and where the case comes in in the growth of technology. I guess what I'm wondering about is it's not a complex... uh, The phone itself has gotten more complex, but understanding what the phone has in it is not that complex now. I do think that is definitely true and probably matters. Two things related. Walter Dellinger made this point um, in a great post for Slate this week. Since the earlier decisions the courts made in which it has not been so protective of privacy interests and it's basically like let the police have a lot more leeway to do searches, the court has in other ways made it easier for evidence that has a kind of fishy origin to get into court and still convict you. You know, this is called the exclusionary rule. It's the idea of like, 
how much um, stuff that maybe the original point of entry for the police was not constitutional, how much of that should be allowed into court in some way? It's called fruits of the poison poisonous tree. fruits of the tree, right? <laughs> I was about fruits to say. of the poison tree. I like the fruits of the poison tree. Fruits better. of the poison tree. So because I think they've cut back on that, they've kind of made it easier to set bars like this at the outset. And the other thing that's important here is that it only takes ten or fifteen minutes to get a warrant these days. You can do it from your cop car. You just get a magistrate judge to sign off that you have probable cause to search someone. I think there are app, there are apps on cell phones now. Yeah. That's a, that is a, Emily. That's a great story. That's right. a really interesting point. I didn't know that. Right. So in you don't fact, have to go to a judge. Yeah, it's, you just go to a judge, and in fact, something like twenty but, states. But you don't will, have to go to physically go to a judge. No, no, you don't have to physically go to a judge. Yeah, just you pound four three two, and you got one. What? Just hit pound four three two, and you can get most of your subpoenas. <laughs> I hope it's a slightly higher bar than that, but honestly, it's probably not that much higher. And. There are something like 20 states already were requiring warrants before cell phone searches. So it's not like this is so difficult to do. And then there was this whole debate about destruction of evidence. Are, are criminals going to be one step ahead of the police and figuring out how to remotely erase zap everything on their phone. And essentially, there's this thing called a Faraday bag. If you stick the phone in that, then it's much harder or impossible to erase it, at least until someone figures out a way to get around that. And essentially, the the court didn't let the prosecution and the government's kind of boogeyman of, oh, everything will get erased, stand in the way of the fact that right now, people are not destroying evidence in this way. All right. Last question on this case, Emily, before we move to the next one. Does this case signal anything about how the justices might handle NSA snooping kinds of cases in the future? I think so, because the big precedent that is a problem, if you worry about NSA snooping, is this 1979 case, Smith versus Maryland, in which the court, in my view, stupidly said that you don't have any privacy right in all the metadata on your phone, all the phone numbers, because once you hand it over to the phone company as like a business record, then that's the same as giving it to the government to look at. That opinion seems completely out of sync with our concerns about modern technology and surveillance. And this opinion suggests that maybe if the court revisits that 1997, 1979 holding, they'll reach a different conclusion. In 2012, in a different case about GPS tracking, Sotomayor, Justice Sotomayor said, you know what, it's time to go back and look again at that 1979 case. Maybe she'll have some company on the court about that. All right. John, our other big case that we're going to talk about is the presidential appointments case. It involved an appeal made by a company that lost a decision before the National Labor Relations Board, which and they said essentially there was not uh, that, the, that some of the people appointed to the NLRB were not there uh, legitimately because they had been appointed by the president during a recess at a time when he actually didn't have the right to make a recess appointment. And the Supreme Court agreed and threw out, I guess the effect is to throw out all these decisions by the NLRB, but it's also to throw into chaos a, a historical practice, which which many presidents have done, of when there is a vacancy, either using a, a Senate recess, of using a Senate recess to appoint somebody who can then serve in that office temporarily, because they the president doesn't think he can get the appointment approved by the Senate itself. So what is your sense about the political importance of this case? Well, I mean, what has the president been trying to do since he's come up against roadblocks with the Republicans who control the House? He's been trying to find ways 
all kinds of different ways to continue the business of government. And so they've been doing everything with executive orders, executive memoranda. Um, these appointments would be um, would be under that umbrella as well. So to the and and the White House is always having to bend over backwards and often getting criticized for doing narrow highly legalistic things because they're trying to fit, fit themselves between the existing laws and what they think of as their powers. And this is this in some ways ratifies their nervousness and their tentativeness because, you know, when they they basically got the president got slapped back when he tried to do something that was, you know, presidents have done made these recess appointments before. And so it just shows you that, you know, there's uh, – and, and, and I guess my point is that this is true with a lot of the other areas in which the president tries to do things, that there are constraints that they think ultimately, you know, bind him. Um, and so here he uh, – I, I think this – I think this will still be a tussle of going forward, but see, it cuts off an avenue for, for presidents. That's what I think. It's been interesting. I've been emailing with various constitutional law type folks today. And there seems to be a lot of different opinion about what the practical effect of this decision will be. So in theory, the president retained the power to appoint people in the middle of a congressional session when Congress is out on break. But in practice, what Justice Breyer said for the majority and everybody signed on to this judgment, although there is a big fight between Breyer and Scalia over the reasoning. But the court said if Congress says it's in session with the kind of pro forma, i.e. fake session that where you gavel in and out, which was happening when Obama appointed these people to the NLRB, that's enough. And it makes sense to me that the Senate would get to set its own rules and the president just can't come in and say, hey, I don't th- I think you're really on vacation. But that seems like it really shifts the power away from the president, especially because in this case, it was Mitch McConnell, the minority leader, who was gaveling the Senate in and out. So I wonder if there's going to be some pressure on the Senate to reform its own rules about well, what to do what. Well, there already it's has awesome. been. But there already has been on appointments. Well, I know, but even more so, right? I mean, so the filibuster was in place in 2012 right. when the this in a way that it's not yeah. now. That's changed. But I still think couldn't... I mean, isn't the custom of the Senate that if someone, anyone Unanimous wants consent. to gavel? Yeah. Oh, sorry. Right? So, like, couldn't one – well, this is my question is if the Senate retains its current practice, couldn't one senator just block these mid-session recess appointments just by hitting the gavel even if everybody is away for three weeks for Christmas, well, but which was what uh, – Right. You could block the recess appointments, but – Right. I mean, now that you have the, the filibuster reform – it's easier to get your appointments passed because you just need 51. Right. And as a result of that, you're not going to need to do recess appointments like this. So it, that, what if you don't so control you could, the Senate? I mean, the Democrats had a majority of the Senate have, but they might lose it. In fact, we imagine they're going to lose it. Well, then you then, you know, that's but I, that, that seems to me to be then you then you get into a debate about the, whether the president has the appointment power and what what uh, the Senate's role is. Is it well, advising consent or is it to veto? Right. And and that but but isn't it I think you should want that conversation to be between a president and the Senate, that you should want the debate out in the open over the merits of the person and or the office right. as opposed right. to recess appointments, which is a shilly shally. Mm-hmm. It's a kind of a like, you know, let's we're doing it in the shadows. Um, and let's even even if the reason you're having to do it in the shadows is somewhat legitimate, you should have the debate about the legitimacy of the appointments and the people and so forth kind of in the public square. And anything that reigns back the seizure of power by the executive 
in this age, I think is a very positive thing, even though the the executive is seizing power because the legislature is refusing to act, is obstructionist, is is nihilistic. And but the, the grand the historical precedent, not at the kind of U.S. time scale, but the global time scale, like Roman Empire scale is when legislatures become difficult to work with and executives seize power. There's a strong tendency for executives to want to seize power. And when that tends to happen, bad bad things happen. Like it's it, almost the most important thing for re- retaining democratic government is to maintain a legislature that to, to maintain is, is to not allow the executive to accrete too much power because there's a non-functional legislature. So anything that that prompts the legislature to have more responsibility and and puts it on them to act is to my mind a good thing. And, and this constraint on the president feels to me like exactly the right decision and and that liberals in particular should applaud this because the we've seen we've seen how much more abusive republican presidents can be with this not on this particular power but on in general on seizing executive power so i'm usually right there with you and i think you've like 80 percent convinced me but i do worry that when it comes to making appointments the Senate, the Congress, it's like inaction is a form of incredibly powerful action. And so on this particular point, the dysfunction of Congress plays out in a way that can just bring parts of the government essentially to a halt. I mean, the reason Obama made these recess appointments to the NLRB was the NLRB had no quorum, could do nothing. And the reason for that was the Republicans don't like the National Labor Relations Board. They were doing the same thing to the Consumer Finance Protection Bureau. They were essentially, it was... You know, we passed the Congress passed legislation creating it, and then the Republicans in Congress who didn't like that decision paralyzed it by having it have no head. There's just this weird thing about that that makes me worried in this instance about increasing the power of the Senate. No, we have a tragic conflict brewing in America because we have a a party which is attempting to sabotage lots of the functions of government and doesn't mind the result. and that's it's seriously problematic. But I think it is highly short-sighted to say that the, the solution to that is to give the executive unabrogated, unlimited power to to basically break the law and mm-hmm. and go against the Constitution and and run rampant over the legislature just so stuff gets done. I think the getting stuff done is like that takes you down the road to dictatorships, to totalitarianism, to fascism. I don't want to go there. Well, I'd I'm just so interested in how this other. actually plays out because I feel like there are predictions all over the map about how much it matters. Scalia was in total doomsday mode because even though he concurred in the judgment, he wrote what is essentially a really vehement dissent against the majority's decision to let the president continue to appoint anyone in the middle of a session. And Scalia basically said, look, this old recess power was when people rode home on horseback and couldn't be reached in the 18th century. We don't live in that world anymore. And so we shouldn't have an expansive view of the president's power. And he just excoriates and the major- the justices in the majority for giving the executive as much power as they did and says that he like expects you know total disastrous um, usurpation of power here by the president I don't I think it sort of will play out in the opposite way but it's going to be interesting to watch also doesn't he excoriate for breakfast oh my god it's crazy today he has these Two big concurrences. You would think, I mean, he won, his side won, and you would just never know from the level of rhetorical heat he is giving off that he is, that he won. 
That's I I love that man. I know. That, right? That's my favorite thing about him. Yeah. <laughs> Yesterday I was quoting him in uh, his dissent in the Aereo decision. This is the one about TV broadcasters, etc. And there was a quote in which he had thold as in like T H apostrophe O L totality of the circumstances test. And our friend Allison, who was editing, was like, this isn't correct, is it? But in fact, it is. It's another nice Scalia made up word. Thold. Thold. It, what, it sounds used, like a great Anglo-Saxon It was word. actually thole. It was, there were two, like, yeah. Use that in a sentence? Thole, totality of the tr- circumstances test. What? That was not a sentence. Yeah, it was T-H apostrophe O-L apostrophe. Totalitary totality of the circumstances. But that's not, that is not a sentence. What's the sentence? <laughs> oh, the whole sentence. I don't remember the whole sentence. You want me to look? What is it? What is another word you could use for thole? The old. Oh. Oh, so it's like ye oldie. Yeah, yes, he just spelled it in this funny like. Oh, <laughs> yes. Oh, right. Uh, like for the no old time reason. religion. He could have just said the yeah. old totality of the circumstances test, but it was like oh, ye old oh. shop or something. I felt like I was in a crossword puzzle. Oh. That's funny. Let's hear from our first sponsor. The Gavest is brought to you this week by the University of California. The Blue and Gold Opportunity Plan at the University of California covers tuition for California families earning less than eighty thousand dollars a year helping to keep a world-class education within reach. That's the power of public. And now for today's breakthrough. UC Riverside professor John Martin Fisher is part of a small and passionate group of thinkers who believe that human immortality may actually be within reach. This concept is known as extreme longevity, and some optimists believe that it can happen within the next 40 years. But if mankind can become immortal, and granted that's a big if, what will it mean? Is the immortal life even a life worth living? Professor Fisher is leading the Immortality Project, an ambitious and first-of-its-kind endeavor that will eventually involve dozens of scientists, philosophers, and theologians who aim to answer these tough questions. The project will address both biological and ethical issues surrounding extreme longevity, because it's one thing to live forever and another to live forever well. To read this story and uncover more groundbreaking innovations by the University of California, visit slate.com slash breakthroughs. What if we were told that we were going to live forever and we had to do the show every week forever? That might be scary. It might suck the fun out of it. The, but on the other hand, it's not like I want to stop doing it or die. <laughs> it would be like, yeah, right, exactly. But it would be like Groundhog Eventually, like every show we, we could ever do would happen. Yeah, Groundhog Day. That is the, the right problem to raise. <laughs> Thad, don't call me Tad Cochran, won a Republican primary runoff this week against Tea Party challenger Chris McDaniel in Mississippi. McDaniel had almost won the primary outright a few weeks ago. But Cochran turned out nearly 40,000 more voters for the runoff than in the original election, thanks to tons of money, huge support from the GOP establishment, and votes from African-American Democrats who were allowed to cross over and vote in this primary and who were explicitly sought out by Cochran's team. So, John, you have been covering this race. You watched it. What does Cochran's victory, which I think, you know, people like me who know nothing were surprised by, uh, but what does it teach us about what's going on in politics now? What does it teach us? Well, I, I think it reaffirms the fact that you um, that campaign tactics in certain ca- cases and instances still work and still matter. During the presidential campaign, we rightfully, over the last two campaigns, have readjusted the way we talk about politics. So basically, in presidential politics, most of your voters, 70, 75 percent of them, are picking who they're going to vote for based on what party they belong to. Um, and so 
your massive amounts of your voters are locked in. Long-term trends suggest we know exactly what they're going to do. And so a lot of it is not up for grabs. But we cover it and, and people write books afterwards as if every single moment and every decision and every little stupid Twitter fight is going to sway the election one way or the other. And there's been so there's been some correcting in that. And so there's a debate about whether, quote unquote, campaigns matter, which is um, there's one camp. Most of them are strategists and pollsters and political journalists who say campaigns do matter. What the candidate does and what they say and who they reach out to all matters in the final result. And then there are a lot of political scientists who say, you know, you over do that. Really what matters are these long-term trends. And if you just look at the economy and the party affiliation of the electorate, you'll basically be able to determine what the outcome of the election is. Well, put that all on pause. In this election, which was a runoff in the Republican Party in in Mississippi, where they basically had three weeks, the Cochrane forces had three weeks to rescue his uh, candidacy, they did a series of things, uh, reaching out to African-American voters, going to Chamber of Commerce Republicans, who I saw before the original vote in the primary were all a little nervous, but they, you know, Thad's been winning since, uh, you know, since before Reagan was president. So they weren't, they weren't, there wasn't a sense of urgency. Well, now there was a sense of urgency. There were a bunch of things that were done by pollsters and strategists, and it was a hand-to-hand combat for three weeks. And that was where campaigns matter. It was, these were not, this is not about long-term trends. This was about efforts to go find the vote, turn the vote out, use all kinds of tactics and tricks to get voters to the polls. And it turned out uh, like it worked, you know, it worked for Cochran in the end. So, Emily, Cochran got support from black voters who are certainly Democrats who are allowed to vote in the primary. He also got money, I've heard, from Bloomberg and Bloomberg's organizations. What possible benefit do black Democrats in Mississippi get from having this conservative conservative, conservative Republican in the Senate. Why is that a sensical vote? Well, it's sort of like, you know, better the enemy you know than the one you haven't met yet. In fact, the Democrat who is running against Cochran wanted all these people not to cross over and just stay home because he would have preferred to run against the Tea Party guy who he thought maybe he could take out. And the National Democratic Party seems like it's disappointed. But, you know, that's asking the citizens of Mississippi to take a real risk. And I think in particular, black residents of Mississippi decided that compared to McDaniel was like sending these weird coded signals about returning to the good old days, that they didn't think Cochran was so bad. And, you know, if you're the voter in a state asking voters to roll the dice on someone who seems really adverse to their interests in favor of a possible victory by someone who might actually be better, that's a hard choice to make. John, do you think it was a that was a good investment by Democratic voters since they're, they know they're not going to win the general? Well, the question is whether a a powerful veteran senator who is who has a history of and was running on uh, his ability to bring money to the state, not in terms of earmarks because they don't really have those anymore, but in terms of more appropriation money to the shipbuilders uh, than might otherwise have happened, um, Army Corps of Engineers projects 
that uh, are legitimate because of the flooding and those kinds of issues, that when the state needs something, you want a guy in there who has the power to deliver. And that that means jobs in some cases, but if not, it means relief or it means something that will actually come back to the state. Now, a lot of people were arguing in the Tea Party wing, were arguing, yeah, but look at Mississippi. It still ranks near the bottom in education. It still has lots of woes. So he's not bringing home that much. But the culture and the idea of some power at the spigot is better than none at all. So McDaniels' dream would be shrink government power, devolve it all to the states, and that will bring, uh, that will improve the lives of Mississippians. Well, at the best, that's a many years long, generations long process. Um, Cochran uh, is, means you still have a, a seat at the table and, and you're going to get something sooner, even if that's something you're getting is not you know, a lot. And also, by the way, McDaniel, there is one of the, some of the reporting I saw, there was also um, the Cochran folks were able to uh, harness uh, the, the McDaniel's sort of um, beating up on the president, which I thought was interesting, too, is that if it's true that African-American voters voted for Cochran in part because uh, McDaniel was was just so violently uh, mean to the sitting president. So every week, it seems, every time there's a vote in the last many months, it's been like Tea Party up, Tea Party down, Tea Party up, Tea Party down. So McDaniel wins, Tea Party up. Cantor loses, Tea Party up. Cochran wins, Tea Party down. Various other people, you know, Lindsey Graham wins, Tea Party down. Lamar Alexander is is the next race, right? Yeah, but is this a a useful lens? Is is the Tea Party up, down, in fact, a, a kind of valuable vector for analyzing the Republican Party? It seems to me the Republican Party has become because of Tea Party influence, a much more conservative party. And it's true that not every Tea Party would-be office holder is winning, but that the, if you think about the effect on the country, it's basically the same. And this sort of up-down, up-down is, is a little tiresome. It's incredibly tiresome. But I think we've tried to argue that it's neither one or the other, <laughs> that it's both. Um, I mean, so to the extent that grassroots candidates who are not terribly talented. Although McDaniel's was a, was a pretty talented candidate. I mean, um, you can't come this close to defeating a veteran senator who's popular in his state. I mean, because there was nothing wrong with that Cochran. It wasn't like he was a jerk and people, you know, I mean, he's a well, a beloved figure and, and the things he brought home for the state, um, uh, people liked. And so, you know, this this Tea Party grassroots a campaign went pretty far and and it was a pretty big accomplishment even though they lost in the end um but you know what we've been saying is that the force is still alive but they're not winning um with bad candidates in states and, and in ways that they shouldn't win and that was kind of the case in 10, in 10 and 12 but what you're getting is you're getting a lot of candidates are co-opting the Tea Party message. So you get um, – so it's – they have been both co-opted. They are still a very central part of the Republican Party though. If you look at the legislation, you now see in the House there might be a chance that the reauthorization of the Export-Import Bank is in danger. That is um, not something that the Chamber of Commerce and the establishment Republicans would like. So that's a legislative outcome um, that is uh, – that should the, should make the Tea Party happy or or Tea Party um, sympathizers. So um, 
it is a useless lens, but the question of the level of, and we've always, the reason's also a little bit more useless, is we've always asked this question about Republicans, going back to the 1976, 1964, the, the level of sort of grassroots conservatives, movement conservatives in the party and how much power they have has been an ongoing question up and down since the 60s. And so that is a really interesting question because it's it's at the heart of the Republican Party. And so we're just calling it Tea Party or not Tea Party now, which is a little bit sloppy. But it's uh, it's still a valuable – that fight still goes on inside the party. So one last question on this for you, Emily. It's now June. The original primary in this state was in when? May? It was in May. The new senator will not take office until January. In Washington, D.C., where I live, there was a mayoral primary in April. The winner of the Democratic mayoral primary in Washington always wins. It never has never not won the election. It's a shoe-in. And our incumbent mayor lost. So we have a, we have a mayor who is a lame duck from April to January. There is something that has gone terribly wrong with the primary system in this country. Why are we doing this? It makes no sense. I mean, the delays sense. are themselves a problem because then you have lame ducks in office for such an extended period. Well, but that's not the primary uh, system's fault. It's the fault of having places where you don't have opposition parties, where you have one well, party it's a, rule. Well, it's a combination. It's like, yes, you don't – in like D.C., you don't have an opposition party. But in D.C., they, they moved up. They, they put the primary in April to, I think, align it with presidential primary season, even though there's no presidential primary just to save money on the election, but then you have this just craziness, this lunacy where you have where you have somebody who's who's sitting there waiting to be to take office. The person in the office can't really do anything and then this other person is just is just biding their time for a grotesque amount of time. Isn't this isn't this obviously fixable and shouldn't it be fixed? I don't know if there's some clear good government solution out there because if you retime primaries and you just put them on some random date in the late summer or fall, then A, costs a lot of money, and B, nobody shows up. Why, why does it cost a lot of money? Because every time you run a separate election, you're getting into gear the whole apparatus for that. That's the opposite of free. You have all those polling places you're staffing, et cetera, et cetera. But you have to staff them now. You just staff them. Why? Why is it? stupider to staff them in September than it is to staff them in April. Well, usually when they put them in the spring, they, like you said, try to align them with some other set of elections that are happening. Maybe D.C. in particular screwed that one up. But usually they're trying to find some common date in which they think people already come to the polls. And we usually have a problem of low turnout, right? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, yes, I guess they're, they're trying it in service of a presidential primary, but there is no presidential primary this year. So why on earth do you have a, would you have a, a a, a primary or in the these Senate races. Why is there a Mississippi primary in May? It doesn't make any sense. Well, because you, think about it. If you were one five in, months before. But if what happens, let's say McDaniel wins, it's in May and the Democrats uh, get excited and, and, and put forward a candidate who actually beats him. Well, then you need the time between May and November to mount such a campaign. So in that case, you'd be arguing if they had it later You'd be saying, well, they didn't give the opposition enough time to marshal a, a campaign. I, I would not be saying that. I don't think I don't think a U.S. Senate race should take five months. Oh, well, that's, that's a different a, question. A reasonable amount of time to spend on a Senate race. Well, it's, it's I mean, ridiculous. It should well, be like the campaign should be tight, fast. Yeah, well, that's a different question. I mean, I, I, that's the, the, all campaigns should be faster than they are. 
The GabFest is brought to you this week by Citrix GoToMeeting. In any business, it's important to maximize your potential and strong communication and collaboration are key to that. It allows you to close deals faster, to problem solve better, to create new opportunities. And that's why you need Citrix GoToMeeting. It's the best, most efficient way to meet with clients and customers from the convenience of your computer, smartphone, or tablet. With GoToMeeting, you can meet online as often as you like with anyone anywhere in the world. You can share screens to review documents and presentations together in real time and use the built-in HD video conferencing feature to see each other face-to-face. It's just like being in the same room, even when you're miles apart. GoToMeeting allows you to cut out the wasted time and expense of travel so you can be more productive without losing that personal touch of meeting in person. Try GoToMeeting free today and see what it can do for you. Visit GoToMeeting.com, click the Try It Free for 30 Days button, and use the promo code GABFEST. That's GoToMeeting.com, promo code GABFEST. Rand Paul, the Republican senator, the Tea Party darling, the likely presidential candidate, has spent much of the last several weeks endearing himself to liberals and progressives. Paul got into a spat with former Vice President Dick Cheney about the Iraq War and the new Iraq War, which Cheney, with Cheney uh, blaming the new civil war in Iraq on Obama's poor foreign policy, and Paul, in turn, blaming it on the adventurism of the Bush era. Paul also spent some time this week calling for the restoration of voting rights for ex-felons, a cause that he shares with many African-American and Democrats and Democratic leaders and the president and the attorney general. Uh, he's also been kind of skeptical of voter ID laws. So, Emily, why is he doing this? Is this sort of strategic positioning himself as a, as a moderate for a general election in 2016? Is it just pure, you know, this is what he believes? Is it positioning within the Republican Party? What's going on? Well, it's all consonant with his libertarian principles, right? I mean, being a libertarian means you worry about too much government power. And the government certainly exerts an enormous ton of power when it puts people in prison and when it goes to war. So I feel like this is consistent and I, you know, take him in good faith. I also think it's kind of for free as a way of positioning himself as interesting and quirky, not moderate exactly, but sort of surprisingly enlightened. Because this bill that he's proposing for ex-felons to vote, I love this bill. It's never, ever going to pass. First of all, Republicans would lose the presidential election in Florida from now until kingdom come if they let all the two what was 1.3 million disenfranchised voters one in five african americans in the state can't vote virginia another place where more than 20 percent of black people cannot vote because of this law and so paul gets to position himself this way i'm sure it's really irritating to regular republicans who see this as useless grandstanding on his part um And at the same time, it does make him more interesting. I was having to remind myself about various points of disagreement I have with him because he seems so shining and heroic this week. And I think on the on the Iraq thing, too, he I mean, Dick Cheney certainly is is can get to go on Fox and can say really terrible things about the president. And there's certainly a constituency within the the GOP that agrees with him. But basically, the country is not interested in another Iraq war and doesn't want to litigate the Iraq question and basically wants to hear neo-isolationism, which Rand Paul wants to give to them. So even though it it gives him some problems with like the neocon wing, foreign policy wing of the GOP, it's not going to hurt him with voters to come out against Iraq adventurers. 
I think that's right. You know what I want to hear is him come out loudly in favor of the science of climate change and taking climate change seriously as a problem, because that's one that perhaps could cost him with the Republican voters of Kentucky. That would be an interesting one to to watch unfold. The um, I think on the Iraq on the Iraq question. You're right, David. Nobody wants to. I mean, not only does nobody want to go into, does anybody want to go into Iraq, but the polling is pretty clear on people wanting to stop. You know, people are in a mood of retracting America's bounding around the world doing things. And, you know, like in 2004, 30% of the country told the Pew Research Center that they thought the U.S. should mind its own business. Now that number's up to 52%. By a margin of 51% to 17%, people think the United States does too much rather than too little trying to solve the world's problems. So Rand Paul is on the totally the right side of, of politics. And even within the Republican Party, um, uh, Republicans feel that way. But at the same time, what what Paul has a, runs up against within the Republican primary context, and that's his first and big hurdle for running for president, is that there is nevertheless this feeling that the president is still not up to the foreign policy job. And so what Rand Paul is doing is not is on the one hand he's expressing views that are that are in concert with the country and with some Republicans, but on the other hand he's kind of giving aid and comfort to the president on this moment of difficulty and where and so that's the political danger that he runs. But listening to him on Meet the Press uh, this last week, he was totally rational in terms of talking about the mess in Iraq. And he was basically saying Obama's made mistakes and the Bush administration made lots of mistakes. He was he was kind of thinking out loud, but he was um he was just kind of he sounded like a sensible person if you were if you were just kind of just tuning in. And Cheney, by contrast, is just basically the same note he's been sounding for the last twelve years and the and without having changed his tune, he sounds just like a person who wants to go back to war into a, in Iraq essentially and it's just interesting that that it used to be that it was Dick Cheney who went on after the first Gulf War who went on meet the press and was the person who sounded reasonable and so just in terms of this f- discussion within the party, what kind of uh, foreign policy do we want as Republicans? Rand Paul is now the much more reasonable sounding person just in that little venue. Don't you guys have the the increasing sense that with the Chris Christie's difficulties that Rand Paul is the likely 2016 GOP presidential nominee? Can you remind me why that seemed like a crazy thing to say just a few months ago? I thought Rand Paul was someone that I didn't have to take terribly seriously. Now I feel like I have to pay lots of attention. Well, he's going to have the ground game. He's going to have all these these the the Ron, the Ron Paul Paulista types will probably coalesce around him, which will give him very huge strength in Iowa, where I think he's basically taken over the Republican Party apparatus there. No, no, so he's, he, no, that's no? been reversed. Yeah, oh, it's been reversed. Yeah, okay. Where he hasn't taken over, he hasn't <laughs> taken it over, but he's going to be the insurgent outsider, not taking it over. No, and no, no, he's got, you know, he's got the grassroots. He just doesn't have he just doesn't have the party apparatus the way he used to. But that doesn't necessarily you know totally and he, you know and he and he just doesn't he he says enough heterodox things that i think democrats are going to be he's going to give democrats a little bit of a hard time and he's not going to be the easy target for the liberal media that rick santorum will be or some of the other people who are positing runs and yet he's got a lot of conservative bona fides that is going to position him well against a Jeb Bush, say, should Jeb Bush try to get in will you remind me what the uh, conservative bona fides is i need to have that spelled out 
Well, he wants well, to get for rid Rand of the Paul, government. He wants to <laughs> shrink the, the government until you can hold it in your hand. Oh, right, that <laughs> part. Yeah. Oh, yeah, big government. Um, Thank you. The uh, I think uh, you, everything you say is right, David. He has a um, you know committed voters, in, particularly in Iowa, and and, the, and he benefits from a split from the other kinds of committed voters in Iowa who are the those who care more about social conservative issues because there you're splitting it between Huckabee, Santorum, Cruz, Jindal. Um, that's four. So, and this is what happened last time in the Republican primary. Social conservatives said we can't, we have to find somebody to get behind or else Mitt Romney's going to get the nomination. But I think there is this worry about him on the global stage, which you don't, and this is a, why this is a problem for kind of neocon lights in the Republican Party who are not, who believe that America does have a role to play in the world. And it doesn't necessarily mean you want to go reinvade Iraq, but you also want to be um, more active in the world than Rand Paul would like. And they have no champion because Dick Cheney is, is the champion of the moment. And Dick Cheney is not a, a good champion because of his record, but B, he's done nothing to improve his rap so that he's just talking about the president is weak. And that's, you know, that may be true and people may believe that, but you're not going to, if you've got a reluctant country where only 18% of the country think Iraq, the Iraq war was worth it, um, which is the lowest that number has ever been. One of the architects of that war cannot be a spokesman for anything. And so who is the new person who can articulate the realist view on the Republican side and use that as a wedge against Paul? Because And you want to use it as a wedge because you want to make it seem like he's dangerous and reckless. And so the, who emerges in that place and how they, how they articulate it will be um, really interesting in, in the Republican primary because that may be the point of differentiation in that, in that field where they're all going to believe in smaller government, lower taxes and that kind of thing. Before we move on to cocktail chatter, I just want to make a pitch to you for Slate Plus. Slate Plus – if you are a regular GabFest listener, you know it's our wonderful new membership program. It gets you all sorts of goodies, no pagination on Slate, uh, among some extra bonus features, some cool bonus features, just for $5 a month or $50 a year, or even less if you use the special offer that I'm going to tell you about. And on the GabFest, we're doing extra segments. So, so if you're a Slate Plus member, not only do you get an ad-free version of the GabFest, you also get a bonus segment every week. And this week... Oh, boy, it is a doozy because it's going to be Emily Bazelon talking about the behind the scenes at the Supreme Court. She's going to be talking about all the sort of what happens back there, what's going on underneath the robes, behind the music at the Supreme Court. So that's a bonus segment for <laughs> – In the seats where you can't see what's happening. Are, you going to, are we going to learn that uh, all Justice Kennedy wears underneath is just – his briefs. How would I possibly know? I sit behind a pillar far removed from being able to see anything that's actually going on. Well, Emily is going to have she's going to have all sorts of cool insider dope about that. <laughs> so you can you can get to listen to that if you go to slate.com slash GabFest plus and sign up for Slate Plus. Or you can email me directly at david.plots at slate.com for the best deal. David.plots at slate.com. And also next Monday night, there's another Slate Plus extra. There's going to be a quick SCOTUS reaction conversation between Dahlia, Lithwick, Eric Posner, and Walter Dellinger, and that should be a doozy as well. Let's go to cocktail chatter. John Dickerson, when you are lounging around with uh, the Paul family, the Doctor's Paul, 
What are you going to be chattering to them about? Well, I, um, I'm going to be uh, uh, chattering about the Great Tamale Incident um, in April of 1976. I was writing this week about uh, how both Hillary Clinton and Joe Biden were kind of quasi-bragging about how poor they had been at various different times. And in the piece was to describe why candidates do this. And and the argument is that the reason candidates do that is to, um, it's an easy inroad to connect with low information voters who tend to make their choices about politicians based on kind of whatever is at hand. And so if, if a politician uh, says something about your economic circumstances and you see yourself in that or you recognize something in that that you find appealing or with which you can connect, then you uh, make a kind of gut level view feeling about that candidate and you don't do much more. You don't go do lots of extra research. You just kind of, that's your opinion. And it, it gives a, a candidate a, le- a leg up and uh, that can be broken all kinds of ways, but it, but it can also kind of establish a good first impression. So in the context of that reporting, um, I was reminded of or maybe learned about for the first time. I can't believe I didn't know about this, but the about the Great Tamale Incident, which was in April 1976. Um, uh, Gerald Ford was campaigning in Texas ahead of the Texas primary. And he was, we were talking about the fight within the Republican Party, engaged in a huge battle with Ronald Reagan. A city, so here you had a sitting president being potentially dethroned by a conservative. Um, and there was all kinds of talk at the time about how the conservative wing was full of crazy people and was going to ruin the, the Republican Party. So uh, Ford goes to this event at the Alamo and there's a plate of tamales and he picks up one of them and just starts tearing into it. Um, the tamale still had its uh, corn husk on it. Oh, no. <laughs> and so uh, Ford is just going to town on the corn husk. And um, one of the um, daughters of the American uh, Republic uh, kind of leapt in and taught him about how to eat a tamale. And the point here, the, the reason political scientists talk about the great tamale incident is this was a signifying moment. This tiny little piece of information that is frivolous and stupid, whether he knew how to eat a tamale or not, nevertheless sent signals, or so political scientists believe, um, and this became something that was obviously covered in the press, and it was considered a, a great big gaffe, but that it sent signals to voters and who thought, you know, if he doesn't know how to eat tamale, he doesn't get us. He's not from us. He's not one of us. And he was running against this Westerner, this kind of rugged, outdoorsy um, Ronald Reagan. Um, and Reagan indeed went on to absolutely wallop Ford um, in every single county and congressional district in Texas. And that actually resuscitated the Reagan campaign. Um, and they fought the primaries out. Uh, Ford had won a bunch of the – or had done very well in the previous primaries to Texas. They go to the convention in Kansas City in 1976. It's undecided. And who – what is the state – that puts Ford over the top and gives the nomination to Ger- to Gerald Ford the rhino over the rock-ribbed conservative Ronald Reagan, Mississippi. So that is the story of the Great Tamale Incident and how Mississippi uh, gave the nomination to Gerald Ford over the true conservative Ronald Reagan. Emily, what is your tamale? Well, I'm only thinking about the Supreme Court this week, so... Perhaps, sadly, I am going to chatter about the court's decision striking down a 35-foot no-protest zone around abortion clinics in Massachusetts. And the Supreme Court basically said 
again, nine to zero, although actually there is a big fight about the reasoning in this case, too. But they said that the free speech rights of the protesters who were just trying to, quote, gently persuade women not to have abortions trumped the state's concern about preventing harassment and intimidation. If you're Massachusetts, what you're looking at is a history in which there was some really vehement protesting going on, including violence, including a murder at an abortion clinic. And so the state went pretty far in trying to head all of that off by telling protesters that they had to stand back from clinic entrances. The problem is that they put the public sidewalk out of reach for people who just wanted to talk. And the abortion opponents found the perfect plaintiff. They had this grandmother who said that she really was just using gentle words to try to prevent women from having abortions. And I think the court was rightly concerned that this law just went too far. There's a really interesting question about evidence in this case. So the the abortion opponents pointed out that nobody has been arrested for harassment and intimidation in Massachusetts outside a clinic for a long time. And Massachusetts said, well, that's because we have this law. We're basically heading off all the kind of disruption that you'd have to arrest someone for. And the court said that in a case like this, the kind of absence of evidence could not count for actual evidence and that this law had to be much more narrowly tailored than the the one that Massachusetts has. So, you know, it's a free speech victory. Ab- abortion proponents, um, pro-choice folks are concerned that it could have real implications for clinic workers and patients. It's already hard sometimes to run the gauntlet of protesters if you're trying to go into a clinic. I know I've experienced that as a reporter. But, you know, we have a really robust free speech tradition in this country. And I'm sure, David, that you think this was the right call since you are more First Amendment than me. I, I wasn't listening. I wasn't listening to you at all, Emily, until I heard robust free speech tradition. <laughs> and then you perked right up and said, good. All right. My chatter, unlike you, all I'm thinking about is the World Cup. I'm not thinking at all about the Supreme Court. So um, and to me, the most interesting question about the World Cup is how far the U.S. will advance. But the second most interesting question about the World Cup is is it okay to ogle the soccer players at the World Cup? Uh, there's a kind of ongoing debate about this. Amanda Hess and Slate wrote about it. There's uh, been tons of eye candy pieces in every outlet you can imagine of the, the very um, fit, proportionate, well-coiffed uh, world soccer stars who are gracing, gracing the fields in Brazil. And... It raises an interesting question because when, because there's so much ogling of female athletes, and clearly when when women athletes compete, there's something more than a little bit icky about the ogling that happens of you know the this or that Russian tennis star, this or that Williams sister, whoever it is. That that seems wrong, but is it different when it's done for these soccer stars? And I would argue that yes, it is different um, because with the so- in the case of soccer, the the ogling is such a small proportion of the total commentary. When you think about women's sports, if, there, if there's, you know, if there's 10 articles written about some kind of sporting event involving women, four or five of them will probably be about the looks of the athlete involved. Whereas in soccer, it's, you know, there's a million things written. And if four or five of them are about the looks of the men involved, then what's the problem? There's no harm. It's like, what, who doesn't want to look at beautiful people and their beautiful bodies? It seems like a it's a wonderful thing to do. It's like these are these are these are human statues made flesh. Um, so what's wrong with appreciating this beauty? So I, th- I think I think the proportionality rule allows for ogling of of World Cup 
player. So go forth, those of you who want to go forth and ogle and do it, uh, do it proudly, do it without shame. The only problem with the proportionality rule is then you have to really sample a lot of news coverage to know which side of the line you're on, right? Well, you don't, as an individual, you don't, you're not obliged to do it. No, but if you're, you're sort you of deciding you know, yeah, to be offended, right. so you for a lot every, of work you have to do beforehand, a lot of canvassing. For every ogling, you have to go study what explains, like, how no, you, no, how, no, you no. have to know why and how and the offsides rulings That's are what made. I was going to say. You have and to you, no, no, not at all. No, no, no. It has nothing to do with an individual's behavior. You, Emily, don't have to pay any attention to the substance. You can just look at pictures of Andre Pirlo. That's totally fine. That sounds a lot better than uh, worrying that my yeah. children are seeing people bite each other on the yeah, soccer Yeah, you, w- you just watch soccer for the games, not for the attractive players. Right, because um, there's so much action. Oh my god. I'm not even going to get... You You are married to a, a wonderful soccer player, a handsome soccer player, even. I am Your the children, mother of I better soccer, soccer players. players. I'm sorry. Watching it on TV is just a little grim. Oh, I don't find oh that at all. I, I'm no soccer. F- I'm not. Uh, I mean, but it's it's these moments of punctuating excitement are it, it's it's like it's it feels like it's no, like no other sport. I mean, baseball, you have it's kind of the same thing where there's some boredom and then it's, you no, can have an soccer is good but, and baseball is terrible. Uh, <laughs> I'm not going to like, I'm not going to sit here. This is the Dick Cheney, is the Dick Cheney rule of argumentation. And take, and take sports watching advice from Emily Bazelon, who can't appreciate soccer and whose idea of, of good sports is is, is like a Wait, you, plain so, so you can't, the, dumb tennis match. You, and John Dickerson, <laughs> who spends his entire time going to kids' baseball games. Wait, no, wait. Neither of you has any standing. You can't, you can't argue that somebody doesn't have standing to judge soccer because they don't watch soccer. Yes, I can. I, I can argue whatever I want. <laughs> I think live soccer is different when my children are on the field. <laughs> I think soccer's. I think it's it's incredibly exciting. I don't. It's I don't not need, boring. I can the just hear going. the sneering condescension in your voice. I'm just Dickerson. trying to. No, I can't. No, no, that's I've not true. I don't. There need is that. no condescension. There's no condescension there at all. There's no condescension at all. It's not. It is not boring the way baseball can be boring. David is so sensitive. He's turned you, John, from ally into foe. I know. You. You. I know. Exactly. You. You. you, you <laughs> think of me. It's, as I said, it's my. It's the Scalia in me. <laughs> you cheerily came on in, in on his side, and it wasn't good enough. Yeah, you are being very Scalia. So, actually, for the credits, I before I do the credits, I got an amazing discovery. This is slightly apropos, courtesy of a, a GabFest listener who shall remain nameless, but who saw this in, in his, I think, in his wife's archives. It's an article written by John Dickerson in the 1987 Sidwell Friends newspaper. Oh, my his God. Last, the last issue. Headline is, students deserve honesty, pseudoism plagues school. <laughs> I'm just going to read the first paragraph. <laughs> Pseudo, unfortunately, is the first thing that I came to think of when looking back on my Sidwell experience. Okay. Although a dose of pleasant nostalgia is prevalent in retrospect, my last six bright years on this campus have been darkened by the fact that much of the school's efforts are pseudo-efforts. A lot of talk, <laughs> hype, and drum beating, which in the end leaves actions falling embarrassingly short of words. God, I've gotten even. I, I started out with such baseline tediousness, and I've only. I like it. You're gotten, taking lots of umbrage. Oh, uh, God. And clearly, I'd studied a lot for the SAT in that. Uh, with uh, I think that's like a dollar and 30 cents full of 10 cent words. I liked your use of dark. Prevalent. Darkened. Yes, Nostalgia. it's been darkened. Oh, yes. my God. <laughs> it actually, it's, 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 uh, it's not very Dickersonian. No. 
And it doesn't it doesn't have the 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 sprightly Dickersonian prose of of forty uh, some year old John Dickerson. Oh, but it is it it is one of these things where it has it has that kind of Dickersonian even handedness because you begin by attacking pseudo, but then you conclude with having laid out this rather strong indictment. I would like to remind those reading that these statements are put forth out of caring for yeah. the school. <laughs> oh, and it's God. Sidwell has been the uh, perfect place for me. God, I mean, if there were one benefit of time and travel, it would be, too trite. I could go back and just smack myself in the head. <laughs> uh, well, I guess we have to, I guess we have to, you know, fail publicly a, a few times to uh, grow, right? It was, it is not a fail. Uh, so not a fail. I thought you, there's a, there is one that I will stand behind, which is a, which was a, um, an essay I wrote in praise of afternoon cartoon watching. Uh, that I think is my. That's where I'd like to stake my claim for that period of my life. <laughs> that go hand in hand with. Yes, I used to watch He Man. Smoking. Yeah, no, I didn't. Uh, that wasn't. That was not a part of the uh, afternoon cartoons. I can't remember what my case was, but I'm sure it was sufficiently whimsical to be inviting and um, and at the same point instructive, as opposed to that previous example that we just heard. Well, about. any. Any listener who has John's uh, rousing defense of cartoon watching, please send it my way. You'll find links to what we talked about today at our show page, slate.com slash GabFest. Please follow us on Twitter at SlateGabFest. Also on Facebook, facebook.com slash GabFest. If you want to email us, it's GabFest at slate.com. No pseudo emails, please. Only real emails. Subscribe to the podcast in iTunes or in another podcast app like Stitcher. You can search for Slate Political GabFest in the iTunes store. Please leave a comment and rating while you're there. Our producer this week is Alexis Diao, who is sitting in for Mike Volo. Thank you, Alexis. Our superb new intern, Max Tawney, the executive producer of Slate Podcast, is Andy Bowers. For Emily Bazelon, John Dickerson, I'm David Blitz. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C., on Tuesday, May the 14th, my colleague Mark Joseph Stern and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets.